Hello and welcome to Intelligence Talks, the property podcast. My name is Liam Bailey. I'm head of research here at Knight Frank. I'm delighted to welcome you to the first podcast in our 2023 season. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the world of ESG and real estate. And to guide us through the maze of acronyms and regulations, I'm joined by Patrick Gower, property journalist and writer, and also by Knight Frank's very own Jonathan Hale, our head of ESG consultancy. Welcome to you both. Hi, Liam. Hi, Liam. Now, not everyone will be as familiar with the term ESG as my guest, so let's quickly define our terms. Environmental, social and governance investment criteria, or ESG for short. Uh, They're a big deal in the investment world and, to be fair, have been for a few years. Jonathan, just start us off. Why is ESG relevant to property markets? So I might sound repetitive to, to some in mentioning this, but because property and the built environment account for 40% of carbon emissions globally, that's why it matters. And because we are living within a climate crisis, it is so important to us in connection with property, which is held by many private investors as well as institutions to understand that many people's investments and returns on those investments and the most appropriate product I can think of to mention would be a pension is connected to the resilience of our sector and the ability for real estate to continue to make these returns. And in considering what is one of those risks that is a key moment of our time, as well as living within a cost of living crisis right now and inflation, other topics we can explore later, the main one being the climate crisis. So that's why it's important. And that's why environment, social and governance have to be working together to ensure that there is no aspect of either one of those left behind. And the governance structure around that is often the silent part, but is oh so critical to driving progress forwards. Thank you, Jonathan. A neat description of ESG and property. So future proofing and minimising risk for investors. We had a very big announcement last week. The government released a huge new report dealing with the first bit of ESG, the E, environmental. Mission Zero, written by former Energy Minister Chris Skidmore, a review of the government's progress towards the 2050 target for net zero greenhouse gas emissions here in the UK. The report covers the whole economy and for the property sector, it covers commercial buildings, farmland, as well as residential property. Patrick, if I just turn to you, as a top line, what's the report saying about housing? Is it a glowing report on government action to date? No, you know, the UK is in a particularly difficult situation in the sense that it relies more heavily on gas than comparable markets. And it also has older, leakier homes. And and this is Mr Skidmore's attempt to sort of chart a path to net zero. I'd say broadly by doing three things, actually getting home upgrades up and running, providing a bit more certainty to industry, to people kind of developing heat bumps and installing them, and then sorting out energy performance certificates that they're not really fit for purpose for net zero so so fixing that so he's he's really charting a path to net zero by doing those three things and in terms of looking at government action there's a lot of recommendations in the report but in terms of the kind of the key recommendations the government should be acting on kind of immediately what's your take in terms of his recommendations well i mean the government's own climate watchdog the climate change committee 
every year releases a report on the government's progress and every year it levels similar criticisms. And, and some of that is repeated here in the sense that they're just not giving industry enough clarity on what they should be doing. You know, for example, um, the government presently has an ambition to end new fossil fuel boiler sales by 2035. But they quote an industry group that manufacture and install heat pumps and saying that's just not enough for us to switch from 1.8 million gas boiler installations a year to a similar number of heat pumps. So they want more concrete commitment on what they're trying to do. And also the biggest issue is an acknowledgement that someone's going to need to pay or help people pay for their home upgrades because they can be very expensive. Jonathan, just your thoughts from this report in terms of commercial property. What was your what was your take on the recommendations? Well, I think the majority of the report is focused around sort of the residential sector. But I think the important point to note here is that within what are seen as commercial asset classes now with the boom in the build to rent sector, living in general, we're seeing a lot of investments that would have otherwise gone into the traditional asset classes within commercial, finding their way into later living, healthcare, student. So I would say there is still a lot of crossover. The point here, though, I guess, is um, firstly, just an abstract point I've noticed is that we, we constantly are being given advice that should be taken up over the next 10 years. It was only a couple of years ago, I think within 2020, it was called the decade of action that was upon us. And I think the COVID pandemic accelerated that. But within the Skidmore Review, it's also about these actions that are recommended for us to consider and drive forwards over the next 10 years. So 10 years certainly seems to be a time frame that means things can be achievable. But what we've got here, just drawing back onto Patrick's three points, is a market that is adapting on many levels with a varying degree of education. But certainly you have a lot of well-known industry brands that might make boilers that are certainly, from what I can see, helping to push that agenda forwards. But I still think we have a a skills gap within what builders are aware of and, and what they can deploy and them knowing the importance of doing that versus meeting the margins that they want to make on projects. And that's not a sort of a a no-go area. That's just an area that I think is present, but one that should be addressed to ensure that we transition and transform our homes over a period of time that is achievable. And one of the points Patrick mentioned there was around funding. Funding is one of them because the costs associated, if we just draw upon a heat pump for a second, are through the nose. And that's before you know whether you really need one and whether your existing home plumbing you know, can transform without there being a degree of incompatibility. The other side of it then is the quality of what's going to be deployed and whether every plumber up and down the UK has gone through enough training to know that uh, on something as micro as a home versus the sort of macro alternative that talks to the commercial world of, of there being like a student accommodation block just how is that going to work? And having had some exposure to some of the consultants leading in that field, I do have hope. But um, no doubt this Skidmore review is going to need to draw upon all of that resource that we have, but actively engage with them to get some firm recommendations that help us move forwards by way of a mechanism rather than just a flat recommendation. We need to agree some short, medium and long term targets. Jonathan, you, you may you may not agree with this, but I, I guess my, my kind of reading of the kind of difference between commercial and residential property is that on the commercial side, 
there is a kind of a commercial impetus, uh, an investment impetus, I guess, in terms of embracing ESG and environmental kind of considerations in buildings. And that is pushing the commercial sector, so occupiers, landlords, investors, etc., to kind of green their estate, maybe not as quickly as the government would like, um, but certainly there is a, a market desire to kind of move in that direction. I guess, Patrick, what the report makes quite clear that is on the residential side, the government are recognising or the government need to recognise that they are hitting an affordability buffer, that actually the residential occupier, the homeowner, the renter can't necessarily afford the improvements that are required. Is the report effectively saying the government is going to need to pay for part of this transition? Well, yeah, and they're pretty vague because it look it's difficult. You know, they quote nationwide research in the report saying that, you know, if you have a, a home rated EPC F or G and homeowners do everything that is recommended, that would cost about £25,000 and save just £1,780 a year. So a payback period of about 14 years. And I don't think they were going to be consumers queuing up to do that. And they also recommend legislating for all homes sold by 2033 to have an EPC rating of C or above. Now, there are exclusions for certain properties like listed properties on or on the grounds of affordability. But there's just a massive, massive amount of investment going to be required. And there isn't an obvious route to do that. Mr. Skidmore does suggest extending the boiler upgrade scheme, but it, it really isn't a level of investment that's going to move the needle significantly. So that remains the real, the most important question. Okay, let's zoom out a little bit. Jonathan, your day-to-day focus is ESG in the round through your consultancy work. Just as you look ahead to 2023, what do you think the biggest themes are going to be in the sector uh, for the year ahead? So although these are the biggest themes, I feel like this is a, a snowball building at the top of a mountain and it's some way down. So, so whatever I'm saying this year, within reason, I've noted this before, but I think, I think in how I'm going to deliver this, there will be greater detail. And we'll see how this plays out over the course of the year and indeed in the years that follow. So the first big one in my eyes, and this is all framed through a net zero carbon lens, is around the fact that that presents short, medium and long term objectives that need action to support getting towards that end goal of, of net zero by 2050. So on the sort of first one of those is is data. So how accessible is that data across the E, S and G spectrum of reporting? How transparent is that data? And also in terms of the validity of that data, is that data undergoing any form of assurance? So in terms of accessibility, what I mean by that is, are we still using a high degree of estimations? Have we got our metering to the point for properties where for electricity and gas and hopefully water, are we getting regular data feeds? Do we house them anywhere? Do we regularly review them? And are they accessible without too much faff for reporting? The second point then around transparency is what is the quality of that data? And are we regularly reporting on that? Because... The main point around this, which leads me on to assurance, is that when you're reporting numbers alongside your financial numbers, so non-financial versus financial, and for a listed company, if I take that sort of top view, they should have a degree of believability that 
stands up to scrutiny. And that's where the role of audit or assurance comes in. And if you are putting out those targets, which you intend to meet of net zero by 2030, well, what does that mean across what envelope of your business across a particular emission scope? And I think we need absolute clarity on that. So for me, data, building an accessibility transparency and closing that loop with some form of validation through assurance is really important to make sure that when we talk about net zero, that we know exactly where people are heading, where they are on that journey, what has enabled them to move forward quickly, but also what are the areas that are causing them to fall down. On the same theme, point two to my mind is getting as familiar as we can be around the requirements of embodied carbon. Now, we've seen a a variety of different development clients really embrace this and consultants in that sector, the likes of, just to name but a few, Landsec, British Land. We've also seen Lendlease and Related Argent push ahead there. But in essence, whether you're looking to knock down and rebuild a hotel, an office block, a prominent property on Oxford Street, currently housed by a retailer, we're looking at why would you knock it down versus renovating what's there and what are the implications around that and at the moment you know in terms of old versus new the operational carbon is only really 25 percent of the picture at a push so it there is an immense footprint around knocking something down and at the moment government reward that by giving vat at zero rate and that's a problem for the industry and not just commercial but also residential as well and that's one that isn't often spoken about, but I'm starting to hear more noise about that within the sector. And then lastly, given that we have been in a sort of period of instability, notwithstanding the conflict over in Ukraine, also looking at where that has pushed inflation, leading to a cost of living crisis, there are lots of different pressures at the moment. And and what we want to consider here is how the S in ESG, the social side of things, can be referenced because it's important that buildings contribute positively to socio-economic localities. And there are ways in which you can appraise a building in order to articulate either a value attached to the social measures that are present within a building and its supply chain, but also there are non-financial methods as well to deliver tangible impact. So I think On that basis, we're looking at data, embodied carbon, but also how we will continue to integrate the S. And that's all through a net zero carbon lens. So certainly last year when we held an event on net zero neighbourhoods, that was very much looking at the just transition, which was a theme at COP27. I expect that to continue. And moreover, I think we are all on an education curve right the way throughout the industry as this disruptive rightfully, positively so, force of ESG is helping us to recalibrate. Thank you, Jonathan. So data, embodied carbon and social impact, the three big themes for the year ahead. And all of those we will be returning to in this podcast and our uh, our research through the year. Just a final question for both of you. Jonathan, you, you probably sort of already answered this. I'm going to go to Patrick first for this one. Uh, this is very exciting. We've got a new ESG-focused research newsletter launched this week. And In that newsletter, I mentioned the fact that ESG covers everything from the efficiency of domestic heat pumps to the social value, as Jonathan just said, of giant regeneration schemes. Now, last year, The Economist suggested that we might have reached peak ESG, 
heresy, I know, Jonathan, and suggesting that it needs simplifying. And they suggested, for the moment, parking the S and the G and focusing on the E. And actually, they even expressed an idea of narrowing the focus of the E from environment to emissions. Patrick, to you first, just looking at that challenge of climate change and the the net zero report we've just talked about, doesn't that make sense? Just keep the focus simple and actually a relentless focus from corporates and investors on emissions rather than the rest of the ESG story? It's a difficult one. It feels like uh, there's so much progress has been made on the E already in the sense that there's quite a clear legislative path now to, to net zero and, and people are you know on that path and trying to react and so on. Whereas the S is still this much messier place, it feels like, from where I'm sitting, where what's good from an S perspective has has shifted over the course of this year, for example, in light of the, the war in Ukraine. And it's not necessarily set what's positive from an S at a governmental level. You know, it can be set by shareholders, it can be set by customers, and it's a bit of a moving target. So I can see how if one is proving to be more problematic than the other, it might be tempting to decouple them. But honestly, I think it's marketing, really. All of these issues need to be dealt with eventually. And if you want to group them together, if that that helps people raise funding and helps them think about it in a more coherent way, then that's fine. But I do think it's largely just marketing and these problems need to be tackled eventually anyway. I've heard this recently as well about the split. And this is internally as well as outside the business. You know, why don't we just separate these out a bit? And I think what I feel about that is that this area needs greater resourcing. I totally take it on board because I run a consultancy as well that this needs to be fee generating. But I think also because we are within the midst of change management in how organizations operate, there needs to be some consideration as to how you're going to pull together the micro and macro leaders within a business to ensure that there is an appropriate form of process and control through a central hub that allows for specialists in the area of social or within the area of environment, but project managers that work with them to pull these together and help to understand our clients. But also, if I talk for a moment about our own business, you know, we have that in the sense that we have, you know, a very impressive governance approach to how we engage the right people within the firm on these topics. And I've no doubt see that in clients that we work with too. But I think it's telling people that when they consider separating these out, I find it really important to tell the story through the ESG lens rather than separating them out. But I I do feel it's important to go into detail at appropriate times on subject matter. It's just you need resource to help you do that. And I think at the moment, we're still working within a world where I think we're building. We're building that. We're still going through change. And the more resource we have on this, the better. And yeah, it is going to cost firms like ourselves and others more to get to the desired outcome. But I think that by way of a economic shift will be a balancing act. And like with any transition, you do it too too quickly, you can have some hiccups. But I do think we need to continue to accelerate our action on climate change. There is just no other option. Thank you very much. Uh, Huge topic. I'd love to get more into this, but we've run out of time for this episode. So um, thank you very much to Patrick and Jonathan for joining me today. Cheers, Liam. Thank you. Thanks, Liam. It just leaves me time to remind you all that for more analysis, uh, you can subscribe to our research note that goes out every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. 
or any one of our dedicated sector-focused newsletters, including that new ESG newsletter that I mentioned. See our show notes for more details. And please subscribe to Intelligence Talks wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you very much for listening to this week's episode. 